So Impact Media 360 is a company that I, where I create and produce social impact content that mainstreams social change. So not documentary films, but reality TV shows that talk about or that actually have live game shows of social entrepreneurs, women entrepreneurs, uh, young youth activists and leaders where you crowdfund them while they're on TV. These were the kind of formats that I developed and that I created as my, I was feeling like I think I'm done with tennis. I want to do something bigger that can really move the needle of humanity and be more of a voice. And so I founded that company actually in my senior year of college, which was 2013, but in fact started it in 2010. And that's where this concept of Shikha's Heroes slowly turned into this other show called KBH, Gone Banega Hero, which eventually became The Real Deal, which is a television show that I was able to launch. And it became the world's first impact investing reality game show and 360 degree platform for social entrepreneurs in India where we took the top 12 social entrepreneurs of the country at that time, put them through a whole bunch of challenges across the country to test their personal values as well as business acumen and skill sets, while impact investors followed them around. And at the end, before getting eliminated, those who remained were offered a deal. But throughout the entire season, the ecosystem of impact investors, social change makers, the government, celebrities, other nonprofits all came in to support each other, but especially these 12 social entrepreneurs. So much so that nine out of the 12 entrepreneurs walked away with funding and a total of almost half a million US dollars. Welcome to That's So Hindu, the podcast brought to you by the Hindu American Foundation. I'm Matt McDermott. In this episode, Suhag Shukla learns how Shika Uberoy Bajpayee transitioned from being a world-class professional tennis player to becoming a social entrepreneur, and how Hinduism has given her a competitive edge in both. Shika Uberoy Bajpayee is a world-class tennis player, scholar, and social entrepreneur. In 2004, she became the first Indian woman to qualify and reach the second round of the U.S. Open. She also won a silver medal at the 2006 Asian Games, rose to the title of India's number one player, and was named the 2007 Z Astitva Athlete of the Year. After taking a break from collegiate studies to pursue tennis professionally, Shikha returned to Princeton in her late 20s and earned degrees in anthropology and South Asian studies. Now she's headed towards making a name for herself as a social entrepreneur, utilizing the power of media and technology for social good, which we'll talk about today. Shika is one of five sisters, all of whom played tennis and all of whom were raised in a devout Hindu home. I reconnected with her and her family by coincidence in 2013 at Princeton, but I first met the beautiful Uberoi family nearly 15 years earlier when our family were regulars at the Vishnu Mandir in Tampa, Florida. I remember how completely impressed and inspired my husband Asim and I were hearing Shikha, who was then maybe 13 or 14, and her sisters singing Adi Shankaracharya's Nirvana Shatakam by heart. Shikha, welcome. Wow. You know, <laughs> I remembered that. Yeah, thank you so much. What a beautiful bio and, and reading of, uh, of, of 
my life and, and how we've intersected again. Thank you. Well, I'm so excited to have you here, um, especially because it was great to reconnect. And I knew you were destined to do great things way back when. And, and then when I saw you sitting there at the uh, Princeton graduation, when I had come to uh, provide some words of hopefully wisdom uh, to the graduating Hindu students. Um, I looked at you and your parents and I, I couldn't place you. And then all of a sudden, I think a day later, the light bulb kind of went on. Oh my gosh, is that the same family from Tampa? And lo and behold, here we are. Yeah, it's meant to be, right? We keep it following is. each other. We keep finding each other. So, you know, when I first met your parents, we learned early on that they were in Florida to support your and your sister's blossoming tennis careers. And so I wanted to ask a couple of questions about tennis. Um, and I'll just ask them all at once and then, you know, feel free to kind of um, open mic it from there. But what triggered your interest and your sister's interest in the sport? Um, and then how did your parents recognize that this was something different than just a passing fancy? Because it compelled them to cross oceans and, and move from India to the United States um, to, to support um, this interest, passion, and then career. Um, tell me a little bit about that. Thank you. It's a great, great start to the, our, our conversation. So, you know, I'd, I'd actually take your, your question and kind of reorder it because I think my interest blossomed um, because it was so much of my father's desire uh, for all of his daughters to excel both academically and athletically. And we played every sport growing up um, in Princeton, New Jersey, before we moved to Florida, um, from swimming to soccer, basketball, of course, tennis, horseback riding. We were we dove into everything with the mentality of excellence, right? Um, excelling in every single thing was like a must. You had to do it at home, be it Kumon or piano practice or you know tennis or diving, or you just had to do it. And and I think. I say had to do it uh, with a little bit of a grain of salt because I don't mean it that way. I mean it that it was just, it has, it, it does have to be taught, right? To have that level of excellence, but that's the training. I think that's when the training started, that this is how you carry your life with this level of excellence and everything you do it doesn't have to be in school or an after school activity. And so Tennis, I think, you know, my sisters and I kind of gravitated towards because I think genetically, I think just, you know, saying this anecdotally, I think just Indians just love tennis. Right, right. No, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, something just special about tennis that Indians just gravitate towards, second to cricket, of course. And, um, you know, my dad uh, took us to the U.S. Open pretty much every year. And, you know, we started to get really good, my sister and I. And, you know, waking up at five o'clock before school was just the norm. Training after school, doing Kumon in between in the car on the way from one lesson to the next lesson. And moving to Florida was a must at a point because I started to do so well in my own section in the United States. Then, you know, becoming top in Florida and just kind of progressing down the normal youth path. So I think my father a set the platform for um, enabling that talent and then providing the resources and the tools to nurture it, to drive it all the way to as far as it could go. So that providing of those resources, I think, 
takes a very special and unique mentality, which is unusual for Indian parents. So all of this bio that you read that we started with, everything starts at my parents. Like I literally, it's all them. I've just been able to express what they've laid out in front of me, basically. So all of that you read and may perhaps some of the listeners might be, you know, oh, that's really interesting or inspiring. It's all my parents. I wouldn't be who I am if it weren't for them. So I'm giving it all to them. <laughs> that's amazing. That's amazing. And you know, the, the Hindu prayer, right? I mean, it, it is true. I mean, they know not only bring us into the world physically, but are, are so integral to who we become as adults. So let me ask you this. Did your mother or your father, did they play sports growing up? Yeah, that, that's an, my, my mom played a little bit of batty, a little badminton, uh-huh. but it was more my dad. And my dad loved playing every sport he could get his hands on, specifically tennis and table tennis. So mm. we have to remember the time in India, uh, you know, post-partition coming over as Punjabis, you know, uh, over from Pakistan, you know, settling eventually in Hyderabad. Access and opportunity to sports, especially elite sports like tennis, were for the few and far between. Sure. So court time for my dad was so limited. Focus on studies, studies, studies was just always, you know, what he heard. And then also with table tennis, right? Table tennis is a smaller court. You can play it anywhere. So that kind of a sport allowed for him to express what he probably wanted to do in tennis. Right. And he did excel pretty quickly. Um, you know, was selected for the junior Olympic team. Oh. Uh, but yes, but what happened was his family, you know, his sisters and, and parents, specifically my, my grandmother said, you kind of study, You're, right. you know, school is the way out, not table tennis. So that kind of cut, um, his sports vision or desires, if you will. And I think he's bottled it all up <laughs> and got to express it five times over right. with five of his children, you know? <laughs> well, I'm glad he did. I'm glad he did. You know, yeah. it, it reminds me of two things um, and, and about my father as well. I, I'm a different generation than you. Uh, and so as immigrants coming to this country, my parents' focus was, well, you need to study. You know, it wasn't right. that different from, and it still is, but study uh, to the exclusion of other things. So right. in high school, you know, I saw my friends playing sports and I was really interested. And my mother would take me to tennis lessons and soccer classes, but playing high school sports was kind of out of the question. They saw it as something that would take away from study time. And so I remember that uh, in high school, I grew up out in California and they had field hockey. And so I think I was, I was always a budding lawyer from the very beginning. I heard that I should be a lawyer from the time I was six. So I took my best arguments and said, hmm, I found out that my dad had played field hockey in college or in uh-huh. high school. So I used that as a inroad to lay out my arguments as to why it was important for me to be able to, you know, try out. And, and so that opened the door, not only for me, but for my sister. And now I'm watching my niece, um, Mm. who's starting to, um, look at field hockey as a possible thing that she might do in college. And so, you know, it, it does take a leap of faith for, for our parents. I think your father, um, I'm glad that he did what he did, but you know, he could have very easily said, well, you know, it was good that my parents made me study because now I'm successful enough to 
cross continents. And so sports is a hobby and not necessarily, uh, you know, a professional path. Yeah, that's great that you you pursued on and used your, some innovation and ingenuity to use your skill sets, your academics toward, to propel some of your athletics there and look what it's done. So great. That's awesome to hear. So I want to talk a little bit about your time on the court, but not necessarily not necessarily the physical aspect, but but the mental and spiritual aspect. So Rajiv Ram, who's another incredible Hindu-American tennis star, has credited his success to, of course, hours and hours of practicing, but also Hindu values imparted to him by his parents um, about controlling one's mind, emotions, and senses. He's talked about the Bhagavad Gita and, you know, that single pointed focus. Now, you've said that you identify as a daughter of dharma. And so that's a term that you've come up with. You say that it's something that you've internalized. So tell me, what is a daughter of dharma? And how does this concept, how did it play out on the court? Yeah, well, well, this is great. So, I mean, I, I don't claim to be the first to have said daughter of dharma. I, I don't know who has, but I feel like I have an interpretation of it that I'm starting to embody now. Sure. And I think that it's something that I have more come to the understanding today more so than on the court, but being on the court and being a competitive, competitive athlete was able to precipitate this understanding today, even though it's so many years ago I was playing on the tour, but it's all part of my path and my journey, my spiritual path, if you will. And so if I talk about, first I can talk about them in two parts because then one will lead to the next, the being um, somebody of the dharmic tradition and competing professionally, the natural parallels are the Bhagavad Gita. Yes. <laughs> so like the Bhagavad Gita like came up all the time and like every dinner conversation, every chapter, uh, like it, it was just always randomly quoted, you know, just in like from the audience, like from my dad, (laughs) in the middle of a point, you know, like that's how, (laughs) how ingrained it was. Right. And the twins memorized so many chapters and verses and things like that too. But yeah, so the natural, the natural parallel, like, you know, correlating um, scripture there is, is the Bhagavad Gita relating to Arjuna and having your Krishna with you, you know, these are the, understandings and and specifically with tennis and I think maybe Rajiv would relate to this too just tennis because it's an individual sport because you're out there on your own right there's no coaching unlike all the other sports you're out there on your own it's you and you your first opponent is your own mind so just even before you hold a racket or before you step on the court the practices of what you need to know like what what you practice as a Hindu every day give you the competitive edge that you need. Sure. So this is why I'm always confused. Why more, why aren't more Indians and specifically Hindu uh, Indians, you know, or Indian Americans playing because we have the toolkit like in our genetics, you know, already there. So, so, you know, having that mental focus that Raji was, was mentioning the yoga, the breathing, those tactics, that's the physical the mental components of that go hand in glove too. controlling the mind thinking thought by thought is the same thinking shot by shot, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the concept of no mind, like having no mind and just playing in the zone, right? In the state of nirvana, experiencing that for a blip. And, right. you know, 
all these parallels to like a yogi and proper deep meditation were what we were expected to play like. And, and, you know, even in my current practice and my meditations today, that level of focus you need to bring shot A or, or forehand A to point B, you know, forehand winner down the line at this exact target, you visualize that, you envision it, and then you manifest it. You create it over and over again for years, you know, on the court. This is why I think, for example, Swami Chinmayanandaji, like, loved the game of tennis. It's mm. such a Vedantic sport, right? So you're so internalized. You're in your own process. You're in your, your head. You're trying to get out of your head. Your body goes into an automatic state of, of executing a shot. So, you know, as you, we can go on and on about how uh, this is like a phys- physiological as well as a mental parallel directly to the, to, to Hindu philosophy altogether. But, but to, to lead now into daughter of Dharma, um, what I, what I feel right now, and, and, you know, forgive me if we move into a different tangent here beyond the game of tennis, but, you know, it's very apparent, um, to where we are in our worldwide climate, right? Both in our earth climate, temperature physically, our emotional state of being around the entire world. Yes. And of course, the United States as being a global leader is kind of at the epicenter of a lot of this. And you can almost sense this dharma, a dharma, a dharma kind of war. I mean, I'm very sensitive to use that word because I don't mean it in the physical sense. And I hope it never comes to that. But you almost have like this Mahabharata playing out and you start to see that it's forming. Right. And so when I say daughter of dharma, I'm very particular about the feminine there in that case. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in the Mahabharata, we, you know, there's a lot of male characters that are taking the lead here. Um, but I'm, I'm specifically talking about now for feminine energy to rise up and carry the way forward in the name of Dharma mm-hmm. and fighting for that righteous path is almost a duty. It's an activated feeling that's come about. Mm-hmm. and. I use the word fighting and I use the word war and I, you know, reference Mahabharata because of tennis, I think because of that competitive nature. And that's how this, where I've been through my path, this like tennis laid this foundation. It's I've understood what it's like to be a competitor, a warrior of sorts, adding a spiritual component to that and marrying the two, you become a spiritual warrior. And and I use, and I think it's important to use the word warrior right now because dharma needs to stand tall, absolutely tall right now. And we do need to show up. And I do think that the leaders who are showing up are more and more women. I mean, look at what you're doing. I mean, this is you, right? So, and I see that time and time again and over and over again, and I'm sensing that, right? It's just something that I'm integrating into my life. It's something that I see a lot of people are women, especially are doing consciously and unconsciously. They're just moving forward and feeling more activated. And I think it's the right path. And I think this is where we're headed. And that gives me hope. That gives me a lot of hope that what's going to happen is, is truth. Truth is going to manifest. That's what I feel. Well, let me ask you this, you know, when we're talking about, you know, this dharma and adharma, 
Yeah. Uh, and I don't know if this is what you mean by it, but you know, we're, we're seeing more and more polarization and polarization, you know, you're on one end or the other, you're with me or you're against me. And dharma is, you know, to borrow uh, the name from a title is a subtle art. Um, there's a great book, um, Dharma, the subtle art of being good or doing good, something like that. It's a, by Guru Das. But it really is that, right? It, the, the beauty to me of Hinduism and our teachings is that while the struggles that are described in the Gita or the Mahabharata remain the same, you know, ultimately it's about greed, it's about power, it's about uh, lust, whatever it might be. Those struggles are still there. The forms might be different and the time mm-hmm. and the context is different. But each one of those things are, are ancient stories and, and the parables tell us that it's difficult to make the right decision and the right decision may be different according to time. So there's a subtlety. But when you live in a polarized society, it seems that subtlety or that middle ground is what's getting silenced or squashed. Um, what are your impressions about that? Because I, I feel like I'm just, sometimes I want to just shout and I know that no one is going to hear me because the people on either side are shouting louder or they have the megaphone. Um, yeah. Are you feeling that? Is that what you're talking about when you're talking about dharma and adharma? Yeah. You know, so when I'm talking about dharma, I'm specifically talking about oneness. And so moving past the polarity, moving past duality, right? So yes, what we see is duality where I choose to resonate as in oneness. And, and what that means is, is I respect people's opinions, right? I, I think it's really important, their vision, uh, what they want to, what they want for, let's say the United States in this case, for the future of this country, for our, of our country. And my understanding with polarization is I don't think the oneness is heard. Mm-hmm. I think I am being represented, let's say on social media, but I, I don't agree with both. If you say the extreme sides here at all, I don't think I'm heard. I don't think oneness is heard. So therefore I don't think Dharma is being heard. And, um, and I don't, and I feel like the people who kind of resonate with that are not necessarily, don't necessarily have the microphones. So that's why Suhag, I think you're getting pulled left and right everywhere and only seeing left and right when there is a middle. Right. Right. And I just don't think the middle is, is loud enough or, or, or being heard enough. However, the medium of communication for the middle, I think, <laughs> I, I think it's it's not the current platforms that are out there. I think it just might be at the ballot box. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> I mean, it just, and we're lucky. We're lucky that we live in a in a democracy that that still has that right. So I'm grateful for that. However, being a daughter of dharma and understanding that this representation is so important and that voice needs to be so important, what you are enabling for me to be able to express that now on a radio is, is, is huge. Right. Sure. And I think the more we can activate that, the better. Mm-hmm. Um, I think with Dharma, there's a stillness, there's a stillness and there is a serenity of mind and there is a total 
uh, embodiment of compassion. Absolutely. And so all of that, I don't see enough around me. I don't see it in media. I don't see it on social media. Um, I do see it in the subtleties. Mm-hmm. I do see it in the smiles of my fellow brothers and sisters in America. I do see it in people giving each other a chance to listen. It's still there. Uh, whether or not media chooses to show that is another thing, but it is in the subtleties. And I think the subtleties matter the most, especially on in November, 2020. Right. That's right. So um, I'm going to shift gears a little bit, but not, not really too much. So, you know, we're, we've been talking about Shakti. We've been talking about daughters. Uh, your yeah. parents had five. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I just came back from a vacation with some pretty amazing women who I call my soul sisters. It's my sister and a few of my best friends from college. And, you know, we support one another. We advise one another. We laugh incessantly anytime we get together. And our husbands often wonder if we ever complete a stream of thought before jumping <laughs> to the next topic. So what's the energy like in the Oberoi household? <laughs> you know, um, what have you learned from your sisters and your mom and from your father uh, about womanhood? Um, how does the concept of Shakti or Devi play about in, in the Oberoi or clan. Oh, that's great. That's great. So the noise that you were talking about, the inability to complete a sentence, but not having to, because you understand having three conversations at the same time. Yes. It's just super power Shakti at that moment, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like what they try to think. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's hard to keep up if you don't have that kind of Shakti. So that's right. It's like that. It's like that at, with, with all of us. And I actually I only with all of us sisters when we get together. And I only came to realize that until my husband and I've, you know, just been married three years, he sat in the car and said, I need to get out of the car. Like I <laughs> understand how you lived like that. And my dad was just like, Oh, <laughs> you just have to learn to zone out. <laughs> That's when he brings the Gita into practice, right? <laughs> yeah. Stilling the mind. That's practicing. Exactly. So it's super high energy. Um, all of us, um, you know, we have, my sisters are amazing. My sisters are my role models. My sisters are my sheroes and all of them are doing such um, like brilliant things, expressing their fullest, you know, potential of their personhood. Thanks to my parents. Right. Thanks to my parents just saying, go, go after your dreams, go get it. You know, don't never stop, go attack it, you know? And so what that brings is a lot of vibrancy, a lot of noise. There's, there's one or two sisters that have extremely loud voices. It's very hard to compete. You find a way. So that kind of breeds ingenuity and innovation to get your point across and, you know, figure things out. Um, we do have, um, um, strong personalities. So we do have clashes, you know, but the thing is that's what makes it fun. And we always come together. We're always there for each other. Touch wood. We are, like a five pack. We're super tight. Right. Um, and we've come to be that way. We've come to learn how important it is because we took it for granted. We also split our family to pursue to pursue tennis. So there's a lot of gaps in some of our relationships, which we're learning to fill and mend and get going. But under all of that is a tremendous amount of respect Mm -hmm. and love and admiration. Um, it's like, Oh, you know, 
who's the beautiful, most beautiful woman in the world? Well, it's after my mom would be my one sister and then the other sister. And then after that, the smartest is that it's, they're always the top four in my list, you know, sure. of, of everything. And we celebrate each other. Right. Mm-hmm. So what tends to happen is I think there's representations of sisters and sisterhood, which in media, which always talks about jealousy and backstabbing and um, kind of just nonsense and never getting to the underlying base of where the love is. Even if you're not blood sisters, the the sisterhood that we talk about from a larger a macro sense, there is a shared understanding based on power, not on victimhood. And I, maybe because I come from privilege, I can say that, but I want to talk about that for a sec because, you know, when we talk about a need for a sisterhood, it's not because for me, it's not because, Oh, it doesn't, what motivates me is that we have the strength when we're together. We have unbelievable potential. We are all daughters of Dharma and we can awaken that in each other. That's what inspires me to open my sisterhood to beyond my sisters. I'm not into opening sisterhoods based on victimization or, you know, it's harder to, and I I completely know that's the case. I have been in those positions as well. I understand that. But I want to go past that because you know what? That's what keeps us together. And that's what keeps us inclusive of the opposite sex. That's what keeps us inclusive of thinking of the entire community as we become leaders of the community, not just a part of it. Right. So I taking that kind of a solution based positive based approach to our collective sisterhood is what I want to, to have discussed more. Absolutely. Cause it's the other side. You Absolutely. Know? And I think that, you know, we've somehow, and I don't know whether, you know, I don't want to lay blame on, you know, Western feminism or whatever feminism, but I do feel that we've somehow come to a point where some of the most uh, powerful aspects of Shakti, compassion, caring, nurturing, uh, we've allowed ourselves to be convinced or society has convinced itself that those are somehow weak. Uh, mm. I think we're slowly recognizing that there's actually strength in compassion. There's strength in vulnerability. There's strength in, in nurture. And we just need to do more of, uh, of sharing that and showing that in our, in our leadership, in the way that we engage with the world. Recently, we had a staff retreat and, um, you know, our, our, our trainer was talking about leadership and she said, you know, I can't remember what she said about the past. I think she said in the past, leadership was about power. In the present, it's about intellect. But in the future, it's going to be about heart. Now, that's not saying that with heart, intellect and power are not necessary or they don't come as part of that parcel. But I think it's what do you lead with, right? And and so I think I'm hearing a little bit of that coming from you as well, that yeah. um, there's a lot that women can offer. And in many ways, those things that we offer sometimes have gotten cloaked in language of victimhood. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with that. And where I'd like to just add a, another layer to your um, your definitions there is that because 
women are kind because men are kind. They are courageous. Mm -hmm. Courage is the prerequisite to kindness. Yes. Passion in the face of all odds is the prerequisite to love. It's very easy to take the shortcut and shout and be rude and say, the, you know, say hurtful things. That is laziness, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And intellectual endurance takes compassion. A, um, a deep mind, a powerful mind speaks through love because of the courage it takes, because of the patience it needs to be practiced and the wisdom it's founded on. And so in my 36 years on, on this planet, the most, in my opinion, courageous people I have seen, the more of them, more and more of them are women mm -hmm. because they practice these prerequisites all the time. Mm -hmm. But on the outside, we just see, oh, love, kindness, sensitivity. Nobody talks about the prerequisites before you get to express love, kindness, and sensitivity. It takes that strength. So when we talk about being a leader of compassion with compassion, I think we need to say and specify how much courage it takes and strength and power it takes to lead with compassion mm -hmm. and tolerance. So I... I think a little bit of diving deeper into the layers of what love means and to the subtleties of what compassion means, I think we'll find a whole wealth of strength and power and courage that we're familiar with today. The combination, as you said, is what is what we're headed towards. Yep, absolutely. So let's transition to your transitions. Uh, yes, which uh, a lot has happened in in two in the past three years. You went from pro athlete to college student then now to social entrepreneur living in California's Orange County. So yeah. I want to start with your media company, um, Impact Media 360. Yes. And what's your motivation in starting it? What have been some of the challenges? Sure, sure. Yeah. So, you know, this, this goes back to um, Seva and giving um, very much the reasons why I wanted to represent India and play um, for India because being being the unusual is important, especially in this era. And giving back, especially being a representation for women and women of color, um, being on a world stage was a large motivation for competing and staying, you know, in the professional tour and the professional circuit. And that value is, is something that stayed with me and something that I practice every day. I can't imagine my life without that understanding of how I want to express myself. So Impact Media 360 is a company that I, where I create and produce social impact content that mainstreams social change. So not documentary films, but reality TV shows that talk about or that actually have live game shows of social entrepreneurs, um, women entrepreneurs, uh, young youth activists and leaders where you crowdfund them while they're on TV. And these were the kind of formats that I developed and that I created as my, I was feeling like, I think I'm done with tennis. I want to do something bigger that can really move the needle of humanity and be more of a voice. 
And so I founded that company actually in my senior year of college, which was 2013, but in fact started it in 2010. And that's where this concept of Shikha's Heroes slowly turned into this other show called KBH, Gone Banega Hero, which eventually became The Real Deal, which is a television show that I was able to launch oh. um, in, the in, in India. sorry, um, And it became the world's first impact investing reality game show and 360 degree platform for social entrepreneurs in India, where we took the top 12 social entrepreneurs of the country at that time, put them through a whole bunch of challenges across the country to test their personal values as well as business acumen and skill sets, while impact investors followed them around. Hmm. And at the end, before getting eliminated, those who remained were offered a deal. But throughout the entire season, the ecosystem of impact investors, social change makers, the government, celebrities, other nonprofits all came in to support each other, but especially these 12 social entrepreneurs. So much so that nine out of the 12 entrepreneurs walked away with funding and a total of almost half a million U.S. dollars. Wow. Yeah. And, and so this became a platform. And it's the first time it was ever been done. And, you know, as a result, all this awareness on social change, but more than that, action. Again, I'm always about action. I'm like, yeah. karma yogi in my heart, right? I want to know what we can do. I want to know how other people can help and get involved. And so the real deal, I'm working on making it a global series, bringing it to the U.S., trying to change the title around to E Pluribus Unum, mm. a little bit more of a focus on us as a whole, right, here in the United States as one nation and, and, and a, a country that's not polarized anymore. Yeah. And so season two of The Real Deal is supposed to be The Real Deal Women. Um, the challenges around that, Suhag, are funding. Sure. Um, you have, yeah, a lot of shows and brand sponsors, for example, want to sponsor shows like reality shows like um, the Kardashians, for example, which <laughs> makes a lot of money, right? Gets a lot of viewers and makes a lot of money. But the real deal, it doesn't make that money initially until you start seeing how there's revenue models in the actual investment and the deal flow that starts to happen and the crowdfunding from the audience and then our technology company that can enable shoppable TV of 50 million products mm. where you can convert your audience members into shoppers and sellers of products. So I've been able to try and circumnavigate this issue that, you know, the nonprofit sector or the social change sector doesn't get enough funding. I want it to be self-sustainable. And so I'm trying to use my technology company to enable more um, uh, monetization for my shows as they air and not just mine, all social change shows. So that's my goal with Impact Media and that company. That sounds amazing. So in some sense, you are, you're building the platform that the current platform is inadequate for, which is conversation and inspiration in the middle. Uh, right. Yeah. Right. I mean, that, that's, that's the type of content. I mean, it, it takes us away from all the noisy platforms and, and gives us that moment to kind of see what the best of humanity is. Uh, no. Even though it's it's a competitive uh, spirit, uh, it sounds yeah. like you know people are competing for good things. It's a good cause. Uh, right. So, um, if people are interested in watching uh, the series, is there a place where they might be able to watch it? Yes, actually. So the first season they can actually see on ndtv.com/slash the real deal. Okay. Uh, that was the first season. So it's still on the website. It aired, it aired twice on in, in India on NDTV. Um, 
and if anybody wants to contact me, they can, you know, on, on LinkedIn and Facebook and whatnot too, about future seasons and things like that. I, I do believe there's a huge appetite right now. Yes. Um, for two parts. One, of course, the environmental change and environmental social entrepreneurs are so important right now. But more than that, Suhag, I believe there are so many good people on this planet, way more than they're bad players. Yeah. Way more. They're way more. For whatever reason, from probably monetization reasons, media wants to focus on the negative because it That's sells. Right. That's right. I'm about proving that the positive can sell better. And I, and I did, I proved that in the first season with 10 million viewers on one wow. of the smallest channels TV had. Yeah. 10 million loyal viewers. They kept coming back to see how, and then how they could make the change and how they could support and follow up. That's the success. Yeah. The success of that first season was in people reaching out and emailing and finding me and saying, how do I become a social entrepreneur? I have, I have $200. Can I invest in somebody? Wow. You know, um, any of the 12, can I get in touch with any of the 12, which, you know, I want to invest in this person. Can you give me their email ID? Uh, when I grow up, I want to be social worker. Can I get a job at this person's company now? You know, you planted the seed. that's me. People yeah. are so ready, especially Gen Z. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about that. And this was all, this was all happening in India. Um, yeah. Which, which are really the untold stories. I mean, you pull up any headline um, today. And it's not good news. It's always yeah. bad news. And, and that's, that's probably one of the things that uh, the first things that I start with um, in my work, you know, constantly uh, trying to educate, whether it's lawmakers or average Americans or teachers or students or whoever it is, that you can't just base your understanding on anything with just mm-hmm. headlines. Uh, you need to go and, you know, go to a big city, a small city, no matter where you go in India, um, that spirit of um, resilience and of pluralism is very much alive. And you have to go there to be able to see it because you're not going to see it in the New York Times. You're not going to see it, you know, in the Washington Post or or wherever else. Because like you said earlier, uh, bad news sells. Uh, Great news. Good news is, I don't know... (laughs) Well, it's in platforms like yours. Um, <laughs> Great. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you moved to India to launch your media company. And, um, you know, and it, the focus was on social impact programming. So that makes sense. But now you're in Orange County, California, which right. is materialistic enough to have um, housewives of Orange County, I think is <laughs> what I saw. <laughs> So what's, what's that transition been like? Um, you know, you move from, from India to, I think you had a little bit of a transition here in New Jersey and then, and then to Orange County. What's that been like? You find yourself in kind of a state of cognitive dissonance living there and <laughs> doing what you've set out to do in terms of social impact. Yeah. So, so great. So, <laughs> you know, you're right. Orange County is, it's absolutely stunning. Like mm-hmm. you, you wake up every day and it's a perfect day. It's the sun right at 70 and, you know, just the clear skies and palm trees. And I have this ocean view from my office and it's like, 
wow, yeah. I cannot believe people live here. This is where you go to have a vacation, <laughs> right. right? But then a couple of weeks in, you realize, oh, people can still be upset and angry and sad and hurt. Mm-hmm. Maybe perhaps the abundance of perfection is unreal and creates a delusion. Perhaps that's the case. So there was beyond cognitive dissonance, there was very much of like discomfort uh, Uh around some demographics response to having everything Hmm. yet feeling pain and loneliness and sadness and all the things that we all want, regardless of where we live, right? Well, we don't want rather, regardless of where we live. The other side of that, I find so much of Southern California identify or practice Hinduism all the time. <laughs> so like, you know, Southern California, Paramahansa Yogananda, Encinitas Ashram, uh, yoga is just everywhere here. Indian food, of course, but like Ayurvedic practice. I mean, I'm just looking outside, you know, because of all the shops behind me. And yes, there's a consumerism behind that, but in it, there's tons of East, there's tons of India, specifically awakened India, spiritual India, specifically Hindu India. So in a way you see those practices emerging and evolving, which is exciting because the West Coast does tend to be the leader of trends and fads that kind of spread West to East, as I've noticed, or meet in the middle with New York's um, uh, headlining a bunch of those fads too. So. I'm finding my way, Suhag. It is definitely different, but I am finding the good here. Um, All I have to do is look up and look outside and the way it just go outside because the way the sun feels on your body is just so invigorating, you know, and it's just so warm and tender. It's like, it's beautiful. Uh, So, and the best day, and I have my husband here with me. So, you know, we're best friends. So (laughs) we're good. I think I'm going to have to visit. You have to visit, you have to be with today, us. You know, it felt like spring was coming and then today I had to pull my coat back out. So uh, <laughs> I think I'm headed to the uh, Bajpai's residence uh, in the next week. Come on over. <laughs> yeah. So I have one more question for you, or, or maybe it's just a discussion point. But I read an article that you wrote recently in which you recall an incident when your father took you and your sisters um, to the courts to practice. And on that particular day, instead of giving you drills and a set of instructions, he waited silently until you figured out what to do. And you wrote that the lesson you learned from that was that, quote, freedom to dictate the course of your day is sacrosanct and must be exercised with responsible liberty, end quote. That, what you said, reminded me of something that I've often uh, quoted Swami Chinmayanan about um, to my kids that not doing what you feel like doing is freedom. Or um, he's also said that freedom is do is not in doing what you like, but liking what you do. So he's talked mm-hmm. about freedom in some sense of uh, it, it's a control of senses, right? Ultimately. So how outside of the rigors of of tennis and or or even collegiate study where in some sense you still have external factors that are telling you where you need to be how do you do that as an entrepreneur mm. and when you say where you need to be um 
Is that also including society telling you or dictating that? Or is that very much of an internal uh, understanding of that? Or is it both? I think it could be both, right? I mean, Swami Chinmanandji is saying that, I mean, sometimes, you know, what we feel like doing is very often driven by external factors, right? Yeah. Uh, what society uh, determines to be cool. Um, but having that, according to my understanding of that quote, it's that true freedom is to be able to rise above that, to rise above the the waves, right, that are created by society, that are oftentimes created internally by us trying to keep up with society. Um, but, you know, in, in being an entrepreneur, you're kind of going into uncharted territory, I suppose. So it's going to take a certain level of uh, discipline, but at the same time, maybe being too disciplined will kind of quash uh, innovation. So do you, do you struggle with that or do you still see, you know, what you said, freedom to dictate the course of your day is sacrosanct and must be exercised with responsible liberty? I love that yeah. quote. <laughs> Good, thank you. You know, you're right. Uh, I, I, let me just preface this a little bit with, I think, what you're touching on is really important for me to express, which is how similar the life of an entrepreneur is to the life of a professional competitive athlete. Um, I think people don't realize the connect, but being a professional athlete, you are in your own micro entrepreneurial or your micro enterprise, if you will. In the case of tennis, I am the product as well as the CEO. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then I have a coach would be potentially a COO uh, and then, you know, maybe an agent who's your CMO right. and you kind of have this world where you, in this case, it's in, in, in tennis, it's harder because you're the product as well as the leader of the product. Right. And you're, you right. know, it, it's really interesting battle that you, you have um, or negotiation rather in entrepreneurship you have a product, you have a mission and you have an objective, just like you have an objective to win a tournament. How you go about those require the same thing, a tremendous amount of dedication, huge resilience, an ability to fail many, many times, resources and capital to be able to even do this and keep failing and trying again. And then of course, appeasing and appealing to the market and which is winning and appealing to your fans and whatnot. And so, yeah, there's parallels in both the values and the objectives and what we're doing. You're right on discipline and it goes both ways. I think people don't realize how creative a sport is, how artistic a sport can be, how every point is a new painting. You're painting it in a different way. You're playing geometry, really, on the tennis court. You turn the page, it's the next point. You start fresh again. You have a fresh page and a palette to work with, and, and you move forward. And it's the same in design and innovation and entrepreneurship and tech entrepreneurship especially. So finding the balance between discipline and pushing it so far where it just enables excellence and performance versus starts to stifle it is something that I feel like I've practiced for a long time with tennis. And I know when I've made mistakes on both sides, 
right? Over-discipline does definitely causes burnout. Too much routine. You don't have that innovation and in, in thinking and creativity. And I really believe that's for every field. It's just not in entrepreneurship. It, it, it's in, in, the, in the field of law, stepping back, being able to see and find the parallels. So to answer, to, to get to your, the, the part of your question around, you know, having that, keeping the responsibility, um, the, the, the liberty is so sacrosanct and being responsible with that. You know, for me, that is practiced also in the how. The, what you do really matters only as much as you want it to matter to you, right? And how much weight and significance you give it. Oh, this is going to mean so much to the world. Therefore, I'm giving it so much more value. But what stays personal to me is how I do what I do every day or how I address a particular project. Because that's where the fun is, Suhag. That's where you get to enjoy the process longer. Because the point of a journey is not the destination. It's every step. Mm -hmm. And so if in every step you're having fun and you're opening up a world of creative excellence, finding the right amount of discipline to walk in that line, you are responsible with your liberty right? And you're protecting it and you're cherishing it because that's in my control, right? How I show up to the office, how I get to do the work that I want to do and then deliver it in the way I want to deliver it. So I, I, I hope I didn't take you in a, in a roundabout no, path no, there. No, not at all. I actually didn't really know where I was going with that either. But I just <laughs> love the quote and it reminded me of, of something that Swami Chinmen and Jean said as well. Uh, yeah. but I will just say, I've had a great time, uh, reconnecting with you and, um, if people want to support your work, uh, is yeah. where, where should they go? Um, I'm like, I was about to share my email and I don't know if that's the best thing to do over the radio. <laughs> I don't want to do that, but yeah. you know, is there a website or yeah. how can they, you know, I'm, I'm very active on LinkedIn. Okay. Um, I'm, and I'm very accessible on LinkedIn. Um, I, I get the emails that such and such has requested you. Like, plus I get the message on my phone and plus on my you know website. So I'm really aware of what's going on on my Excellent. LinkedIn. Excellent. So LinkedIn would be the best way to message me. Uh, it's the best social media public platform. Awesome. Well, I look forward to catching up on The Real Deal on NDTV. Um, hopefully I won't binge watch, <laughs> but it'll, it'll be a program. It sounds like a program to watch with the family. Thanks for joining me tonight. Well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple podcasts. It's how you can help the show get discovered by more listeners. Heads up with that though. That's So Hindu is going on a short hiatus, but we'll be back in a month or two with more episodes. If you want to help ensure that more of these get made, you can always make a donation to HAF over at our new website, complete with a new URL. Hindu American Foundation is now at www.hinduamerican.org. Thanks again for listening. Mm-hmm.